The Common Good Forum presents Gary Kasparov, leading Russian dissident, chair of the Human Rights Foundation and world chess champion, on Winters Here, the Real Russian Threat. Now, our next guest is a man of many talents and passions and one superpower. Uh, like LeBron James in basketball or Serena Williams in tennis or Lionel Messi in soccer, he was the best in the entire world at his game, and the game is chess. He's a world grand chess master, and he's one of the most authoritative voices today on artificial intelligence. He also has a number one in the world distinction, which is he is the number one enemy of Vladimir Putin publicly, which is why he now lives in exile. And the good news of that is that Gary Kasparov is with us today. So I give you Gary Kasparov. Thank you. My thanks to Patricia Delph and Common Good for bringing me in and just putting together such impressive and important event. Um, when I heard uh, Congressman Rogers talking about this incident in the airport, I thought that I Actually, I hear it every day. Oh, you look a lot like Gary Kasparov. <laughs> um, and uh, also, uh, after what you heard just uh, in the last uh, hour, you wouldn't mind uh, another Russian uh, meddling in your politics. <laughs> oh, microphone? Oh. Should I repeat? <laughs> so I, I apologize for being another Russian who is going to meddle in your politics. Okay, um, so where do I start? Um, I told you so, and sorry, I just had to get that out right at the very start. Because people always say they don't uh, like to say I told you so, but I'm saying it right at the beginning because it's important context for what I say later. I've been saying many of the same things about Vladimir Putin for over 17 years. My first article, of warning about Putin was in the Wall Street Journal in January 2001. And as, do as I document carefully in my 2015 book, Winter is Coming, my bipartisan record goes back even further. I criticized H.W. Bush for trying to prop up Gorbachev and the USSR. I criticized Bill Clinton for butting up to Boris Yeltsin and failing to impose stronger conditions for reform and transparency when the United States had so much leverage at the end of the Cold War. I blasted George W. Bush for looking into Putin's eyes instead of looking into his record, and for falling for Putin's ploy of pretending to be an ally in the war on terror. And I spent seven and a half years railing against Barack Obama's Russia reset, and his belief, however sincere, that Putin could ever be America's friend. I say seven and a half years, not eight, because by the time the 2016 campaign was nearly over, Obama and the Democrats had suddenly transformed into Russia hardliners in response to Trump's bizarre loyalty to Putin, which seems less bizarre every day. And by the time the votes had been counted, well, uh, the electoral votes, and the Russian interference exposed, the American partisan flip was complete. Many of the Republicans who bashed Obama for being soft on Russia no longer wanted to be seen with me, and my invites to Fox News dried up. Meanwhile, the Democrats became experts on the KGB and Compromat, 
And I started getting regular invitations to MSNBC. <laughs> Let me emphasize, for saying the very same things. I say better late than never, but I admit that I wonder if such easily gained friends will stick around once Trump is gone. And if Putin is still there, God forbid, he'll be eager for yet another reset. That brings, uh, uh, brings us to the current White House occupant relationship with Vladimir Putin. After Trump's election, my editor suggested a sequel to Winter's Coming called Winter is Here. But I think Americans are finally awake to the threat now, if at a very high cost. As I said last year, Trump had more Russian connections than Aeroflot. <laughs> and while I believe in coincidences, I do also believe in KGB. I've spent every minute of the Trump campaign and administration warning about what Trump and Putin have in common, sharing my lessons of how democracy doesn't always last forever, and how Trump's affinity for my old enemy is incredibly dangerous, no matter what Trump's administration's Russia's policies look like on the surface. I'll focus now on the common denominator, Putin himself. But I do want to emphasize um, one more time how damaging it is to have the United States, still the default leader of the free world, like it or not, to be so wildly inconsistent in foreign policy. We just heard it a couple of minutes ago. Um, uh, Trump is, of course, in a class by himself, often contradicting himself from one tweet to the next. But American philosophy and policy has been swinging like a pendulum since the end of the Cold War, and by doing so, emboldened the enemies and confused the friends and allies. I'm not happy at all that truth about Vladimir Putin is far better known today than when I retired from chess in 2005 to join the Russian opposition movement to his rising dictatorship. But it does save some time. I spent many years trying to teach Putin one-on-one -on -one to Western audiences and politicians who were as interested as most uh, undergraduate global affairs students. The main section was the myth of Putin's Russia. No, Putin is not a democratically elected leader. He is a dictator. No, Putin isn't popular the way that term is used here in a free democratic country. If there's only one restaurant in town and it serves only one dish, is it popular? And what if every other restaurant in this town burned down and every chef is jailed and every Yelp critic is beaten up? In 2007, I was told bluntly in Washington, D.C., that while, yes, Putin was a bad guy, he was... Russia's problem, exclusively Russia's problem. I said that I agreed that at that time he was a problem for Russians, but that if he wasn't contained, I added, he would soon be a regional problem, and soon after, he would be everyone's problem. I didn't have a crystal ball, but I had read a lot of history books, and that is the path of every dictatorship. They may be legitimately popular at first, and they may even solve a few problems. They might cultivate international alliances if they feel they're weak at home. But once they consolidate, once they eliminated internal rivals, taken over the media, the courts, the legislature, the big natural resource companies, they inevitably look outward. Why? 
Well, once everything is under your control, and everybody knows it, but things aren't getting better in the, in the country, and in fact, things are getting worse, considerably worse, how can you justify your continued stay in power, your endless stay in power? Here in America, candidates ask, are you better off than you were four years ago? How about Putin's 18 years? How can Russia be failing apart if the great and powerful Putin has been ruling Russia for nearly two decades? Of course, the enemies. And if there aren't left inside the country, they must be created outside of the country. And front and center of, on Putin's enemy list is the United States. And this is, this is not new, by the way. Many Americans are now only realizing that Putin's Russia is an enemy quite recently. But Putin and his 24-7 propaganda machine have been demonizing the United States for many years, even during the so-called reset policy, along with NATO, and more recently, the completely harmless European Union. Here I will emphasize the need to distinguish between Putin and his cronies, his mafia, and the Russian people in general. They say uh, every country has its own mafia. In Russia, mafia has its own country. <laughs> um, the, citizens, the, the citizens of a dictatorship usually are its primary victims. This is not to excuse Russians completely for Putin's wars and other hostile acts, but after 18 years of propaganda and personality cult, it's nearly impossible to stay rational. This is also the case with Putin's so-called popularity. My mother, she's 81, was born under Stalin. She's seen it through all for her, throughout her life. She says today's propaganda is worse than the Soviet days. Then there was a utopian message. False, of course, but a message about dreaming of a brighter future. Today, there's not even a pretense of anything positive. It's just hate, anger, you may even call it the cult of death. To anyone skeptical, I'll give you just one example of the power of propaganda, especially when backed by nationalistic, partisan feelings. Take a normal, free country in the West with dozens of TV news channels, hundreds of newspapers all over the ideological spectrum, thousands of websites, social media, etc. A totally free press, no censorship or chilling effect. Now imagine that a chunk of that media environment openly supports one party and its candidate or its, pres or, or its president. One or two cable channels, a few other outlets like talk radio. Then after a year of um, that, presidents being critical of the country's top federal law enforcement agency, previously admired by all, amplified by those few media outlets. What would happen? Well, here in the United States, in just 18 months, it led to over 50% of Republicans having a negative view of the Federal Bureau of Investigation in 18 months. What was surely a 90% plus approval by the law of order party has become outrage and accusations of treasons against the FBI thanks to the Twitter account of a largely unpopular president and a few shows on Fox News. The sad news is that propaganda works. Fake news work. Now imagine 
18 years of total media control running a sophisticated propaganda system. Hundreds um, of outlets coordinated to push the regime's message. Putin's, Putin held up as the white knight defending Russia from wild enemies. Enemies like the United States, like Ukraine, like Boris Nemtsov. So please don't tell me about Putin's popularity or that of any other dictator. I don't really have time for tangents today, but on the matter of propaganda, it's important to understand that the waves of fake news and trolls you have seen here in the past few years is nothing new for us who saw it in Russia. This system was created by Putin in Russia as a way of dealing with the internet instead of the great firewall of China. Um, it's a, there was a method used by Chinese of direct censorship. Now, Putin had more subtle approach, KGB-like approach. It was then exported to Russian-speaking neighbors. And by 2015, it was prepared for export to Europe, for Brexit and other elections, and to the United States. It looked familiar to me because it was. By the time Putin turned his weapon against the United States, his cyber army had more than 10 years of experience. Instead of Soviet Pravda method of just one message, blocking all the rest, the modern message is a flood, is a tsunami of information instead of a dam, to discredit the very idea that the truth is noble at all. There are millions of ways to lie and only one truth. Truth is always outnumbered. So what, what to do? Putin will attack again, here and elsewhere. It's not a question if he attacks, it's only when and where, because he has no choice. He needs enemies, big ones, and even bigger. I'm looking at this thing. Uh, he wants to weaken the countries and institutions that could potentially stand up to him, NATO and US especially. He wants to divide the nations of the free world to use moral relativism to say that we're all bad, we're all corrupt. So invading Ukraine, protecting Assad, assassinating a few uh, troublesome people here and there, interfering in elections, what is so bad? Now, the question to me, what do you want? I hear over and over, World War III? And if the only alternative in a, to appeasing a hostile dictatorship is war, or a bigger war, because you're already at war whether you admit it or not. That's another classic criminal line to war against escalating while Putin escalates. No, deterrence is not war. Isolation, containment, unity among allies, that's not war. Of course, the language of diplomacy is comforting, I understand. Taking always, talking is always better than fighting. But what, what if while you're talking to him, your enemy is fighting you? What luxury to savor the language of peace while cluster bombs and nerve gas rain down in Syria, while schools in eastern Ukraine just uh, being shelled by Russian forces last week. It's not the diplomacy, it's capitulation. And it has throughout history, appeasement, that what kills. Failing to stand up in small conflicts only guarantees larger ones. In the words of Harry S. Truman, he said in 1950 while carefully explaining why the US was fighting in Korea, which was not easy after five years since the end of the World War II. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, I have to contradict our previous speakers. There was no civil war in, North Korea, in, in Korea. It was a blatant aggression of the, of the dictatorship from the North, supported by Soviets and Chinese against South Korea, which was defended by United States that led the international coalition of troops and saved half of the country from communist slavery. And today we have a clear, clear result of this policy. 
uh, largest concentration camp in the north and one of the most vibrant economies and, and, and flourishing democracies in the south. Thanks to 36,000 Americans who sacrificed their lives. And please don't sell us this nonsense about threat to North Korea. South Korea was never threatening North Korea. America was never threatening North Korea. It's just classical example of dictators using the same language. Oh, Putin invaded Ukraine because he was threatened by NATO uh, rallying at the Russian borders. There was, not, there was not a single American tank in Europe in 2013. NATO was a paper tiger. And thanks God, Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania have been admitted to NATO. Otherwise, Russian tanks have been rolling on the streets of Tallinn, Riga, and Vilnius these days. So let's stop you know, selling the propaganda items, ignoring the historical, historical facts. So, and uh, since I'm almost, uh, um, let me, um, so just quickly about Putin. So Putin is not a nationalist, he's not an imperialist, it's not an ideology, not Russian greatness, not a neo-USSR. He used these messages because it's convenient to saying make Russia great again, it's a propaganda and destruction for domestic and international consumption. If you want to study Putin's regime, you know, don't look to criminologists, don't look to um, uh, uh, political pundits, read Mario Putin's Godfather. Putin's regime is a mafia state. The, the only way to be promoted in Putin's Russia is offer 100% loyalty uh, to, to the boss, and that's why Putin has been fighting so fiercely against sanctions, against Magnitsky Act, because the Capo de Tutti Capi, the boss of the bosses, must offer protection to every hitman in his gang. If he doesn't offer full protection, then he, he doesn't expect uh, uh, loyalty, full loyalty to, um, to uh, in, uh, in exchange. So, um, um, yeah, and of course, you know, when we look around, so we understand that it's the, it's illiberalism spreading, and even I cannot blame everything on Putin. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, I think it's a natural side effect that America, um, um, people here in this country and in the free world, they care much less about liberty and human rights and democracy elsewhere. Uh, this policy that U.S. largely stopped doing after the Cold War ended. Um, of course, Bush, W. Bush was, was the big exception, except he went so far in, in other direction that it had terrible results for uh, uh, turning Americans, generation of Americans, against uh, democracy, uh, democracy promotion. But that's a, that's a problem. If you ignore things elsewhere, if you pretend that North Korea, Iran, Russia, it's, they're not your problems, you don't care about democracy and human rights there, in the, in the globalized world, it will come back to you. So you will, you will stop caring about these problems at home and you will have, that's what you have today. And um, so very quickly, uh, free markets, free people, freedom of speech, rule of law, all the things that I envied so much in America when I lived on the other side of Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union. Here in the 80s, you had Reagan Democrats. So I call myself a Reagan communist. <laughs> and now I live on the Upper West Side, pushed into exile like so many others. And it's shocked to see that so many of these cherished ideals under attack right here in the shining city on a hill. You can't defend yourself against Putin and Putins of this world if you don't believe that what, you, what they are attacking is worth defending. Thank you.